Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest Wet Leg Floppy Fingers Edition. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. On today's show, Everything Everywhere All at Once is a carnival ride through the multiverse. This genre-busting sci-fi stars Michelle Yeoh as a laundry owner called upon to rescue not just our world, but all possible worlds. And then Slow Horses sits on uh, Apple TV+. Plus. It stars Gary Oldman as the head of a very unmarried band of MI5 misfits. That's the British Intelligence Service. It also stars Kristen Scott Thomas. Uh, and finally, a new indie darling, Wet Leg, is getting a lot of attention, some of it admiring, some skeptical. We get to sort through it all with Slate's beloved Carl Wilson. Speaking of beloved... And, and sorely missed, we're joined by uh, Julia Turner. Welcome back. Hey, Julia. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for holding down the fort. I missed you. Yeah, yeah. It was a very nice balance of uh, fun shows and, uh, and uh, wishing uh, you were here. But uh, anyway, uh, you, of course, are the deputy managing editor of the LA Times. Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate and the author of Cameraman, a, a beautiful book-length essay on Buster Keaton. Uh, hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Good to be here, as always. It's great. And where is here, Dana? Here is me being in the Slate studio for, I think, only the second time in two years. And uh, it's really nice. Just through the glass, I can see our producer and our production assistant, and we can wave at each other and make funny faces and make fun of you without you knowing. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> we should we should get moving. But you were last night in one of my favorite places in the whole world. You were at the Kelly Writers House in uh, at UPenn. And uh, I hope that went well. Steve, it was fantastic. As you know, the Kelly Writers House on the Penn campus is a mecca for writers. It's one of my favorite places to visit. If I lived in Philadelphia, I would go there to work and study and read every single day. And they treated me like a queen and had a wonderful time there. You can actually see the conversation that I had with Penn professor Emily Wilson on on YouTube, and we'll link to it on our show page. Actually, that reminds me of something. I'm just going to say this real quick because someone scolded me in an email saying you should have announced sooner that you were going to Boston and I only found out the day you were there and I missed your show. So I'm announcing to L.A. listeners that I will be in L.A. next weekend. You can find the information about this by emailing us or looking at my Twitter feed. But I'm going to be at the L.A. Times Festival of Books, as will Julia Turner. So if you want to come see us, ask us about the info. It's actually a nice one-two punch for Culture Fest fans because I'm interviewing Mike Shore, the author of a new book called How to Be Perfect and uh, the creator of The Good Place and and a revered TV writer and sometimes Slate contributor uh, at 1.30. And then Dana is on a panel with Slate's own Isaac Butler and a bunch of other luminaries at 4.30, I think, right? On Saturday at USC campus. So come on down for the LA Times Festival of Books. It is great. Yeah, thanks for the info. That's right. In fact, the best way to find out information about it is probably just go to the LA Times Festival of Books website and search for me and Julia. But I hope people in LA will come out and see us. And if it worked out, I would also love to just hang out and do a little LA meetup with some listeners there. Hmm, Okay, well, and of course, listeners uh, should know I'll be in Ghent uh, trying to get my generator to work. Um, (laughs) Thank you for thank you for the uh, crushing FOMO. But uh, should we make a show? 
Yes, please. Let's. Uh, excellent. Michelle Yeoh, she plays Evelyn in Everything Everywhere All at Once, a new feature film. Uh, Evelyn runs a family laundromat. She's portrayed as something of an iron lady. She's perpetually on the verge, though. Why? Well, her husband's a bit of a wishy-washy type. Maybe she regrets marrying him. Her kid is assimilating and starting to distance herself from the family universe, rejecting Evelyn just as Evelyn's own father once rejected her for moving to America and marrying her husband. The woman, in other words, is becoming an orphan, but also at the same time, she's expected to be the ballast for her own family. When the family goes to see an IRS agent played wonderfully, I think, by Jamie Lee Curtis, uh, who's been breathing down their collective necks, the whole thing just feels the family, the business, their whole lives uh, feel as though they're about to fall apart when suddenly Evelyn gets glitched into the multiverse. And out of a serial comic first generation, almost like Sundance-like movie, we get uh, glitched along with her into a genre-busting sci-fi adventure. Okay, this is just a very, once it gets going, an incredibly fast-paced kind of, in its own way, non-expositional movie. Finding a clip uh, was a little bit difficult, so we went with a, a piece of the trailer instead. In it, you'll hear the father character, Waymond, who's himself now in his glitch persona as a hyper-competent you know, uh, a fighter in the multiverse, is explaining the existence of multiple parallel universes to Evelyn. Let's listen. Your husband. I'm another version of him from another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today. Uh, no time to help you. Across the multiverse, I've seen thousands of Evelyns. You can access all their memories, their emotions, even their skills. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. All right, Dana, let me start with you. I I hate to throw the burden of uh, exposition to you right off the bat, but very quickly, the directors of this movie go by the moniker The Daniels. Maybe a little backgrounder on them. Yeah, well, this is only their second movie. It's two young guys who started off as music video directors. They directed the viral video for the song Turn Down for What in 2013. And they've only made one other movie before this, which I haven't seen. It's called Swiss Army Man. And part of why I didn't see it is it sounded really gross. <laughs> the idea of Swiss Army Man, it's sort of a two-hander with Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. And the idea is that Daniel Rad- Radcliffe is a corpse. He's dead the entire movie. And he somehow becomes... I don't know, semi-animated and becomes friends with Paul Dano. But somehow the idea of dead Harry Potter was so freaky to me that I never saw that well, movie. Well, no, 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 no. Sorry. You're missing the other word in all descriptions of that movie, which is that he is a farting corpse. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He is a flatulent corpse who somehow comes back to life and becomes friends with Paul Dano. I don't know. I it, sound, it sounded kind of juvenile to me, but it got good reviews at the time. I kind of want to see it now because that is all lead up to say I really loved this movie. I mean, I don't think it's perfect. We can get into some of the, the shaggy bits and it tries to do so much that I'm not sure it accomplishes everything. But I saw it with my whole family in the theater, not a way that we commonly see movies. I think maybe the first time we've all seen a movie together in, I don't know, a couple of years. And um And it was really rollicking and crowd-pleasing, and the whole crowd loved it, and it could not commit better and more completely to its utterly weird premise. Every performance is incredibly funny and at times very moving. Um, I want to get into, you know, some of the the messagey stuff toward the end. There were some moments that I and my family agreed with this, that the, um, the, the end message felt a little bit preachy. But in the middle of the movie, when all of this crazy multiverse stuff is happening, there's nothing preachy about it. It's wildly imaginative. It's extremely funny and smart and everybody should see it. Ooh, OK, that was a that was a pretty uh, unrestrained pa- uh, table pound. Uh, Julia, what do you what do you think? Bang, bang, bang. Joining right up. I loved this movie. I feel like when I've been back to the movie, we've talked about this on a few recent episodes. There's just something where it feels like, what are movies even for anymore? Like everybody's practicing this quaint art art form. Sorry, Dana. Um, that's just <laughs> this is not the first time that I have been basically put out to pasture on live <laughs> mic. No, well, just like what is the point of movies? I keep, <laughs> I can't keep 
<laughs> wondering. Um, and then this is a movie that like makes the case for the point of movies. Like a movie can take you on a certain kind of ride and make you see the world fresh uh, in in a very particular way that's different than what a great TV show does. And this movie not only entertained me and delighted me and moved me and made me cry and made me think about how much I love my family and how lucky I am to be alive. Um, it also made me think like, hell yeah, interesting brains can do interesting things with the world of actors' faces on screens and practical effects. Um, I, I absolutely loved it. And I agree. It's, um, you know, shaggy. It's not necessarily disciplined and it's two hours and 20 minutes long, which is long for something with the kind of indie sensibility that it has. But, um, I didn't feel, didn't feel particularly too long to me. And it, it, it seeds all these goofy premises throughout it as she begins to think about other universes, like the one where she's a famous actress or the one where everybody's hands have floppy hot dog fingers. And you're like, what a funny throwaway joke. And then they're like, nope, that joke didn't get thrown away. (laughs) Get ready to see those floppy fingers again. (laughs) I have that joke right here. Yeah, Julia, I mean, this is a movie about regret when you really look at it. It's about, you know, the existential concept of finitude and whether you can uh, accept it, accept that you're leading only one life. From that comes all of this wild Rick and Morty zaniness uh, of the sort of sci-fi premise. But at its core, it's about a bunch of people who, you know, regret being tethered to one another and have to come to learn that you get only one life. It is not a repeatable experiment. The choices you make determine paths you end up on inexorably and um a degree of tender acceptance allows for forbearance to others and love and selfhood that said i didn't really like this movie what i'm gonna shock you by saying that i loved certain parts of it i thought it did something that the marvel movies try to do and fail at which is that the humanist setup gets you to the point where you give a shit about the completely, you know, a-realistic or unrealistic or whatever you want to call it, superhero bits in this case like, you know, Evelyn's kind of a in 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 the multiverse can be a kind of superhero in many different dimensions. That was cool, but I thought the I thought the laundromat sequences knowing nothing about these filmmakers and almost nothing about the movie I thought was bravura. I was like I could have watched that. I, I knew I wasn't going to but I could have watched that for an hour and a half or, or more. But let me just say quickly where it lost me a, a little bit. I think it's possible to overstuff the turkey um, and start to lose individual flavors. I definitely think they did that. And I thought at its worst, there were two kind of mutually reinforcing lazinesses that can be used to each to hide the other in a way. The first laziness is just the Rick and Morty thing where you bump the Simpsons up to a whole nother level where just this like massively referential and kind of slightly attention deficit and you're bouncing around. It's like the multiverse crutch in some sense. And, um, and then the second is, is to tie it all together with sentimentality kind of in the 11th inning. Like I, I think they did it well. Everything was, everything was, clever uh much of it was really cunning um all of it inspired a kind of stuporous awe or something i was like oh my god but i was i was exhausted by the end and had a hard time adoring it oh that's so interesting i i mean i guess kudos to the multiverse for bringing us back the steve who dislikes charming things (laughs) Oh, my God. Maybe you could talk about this when you're all partying in L.A. together, Julia. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, in a movie that wasn't as sure-footed and confident and committed to its own bravado, um, maybe the end would have just seemed mawkish. But I was truly moved. I mean, and I think your point about regret, I think, is right. I I was speaking to an ardent teen fan of this movie last night after I saw it um, and talking about the fact that it seems like a movie about midlife, right? The multiverse is a metaphor for the fact that you only get to pick one life, um, but it is not typically deployed that way by Marvel and others who make films with it. 
so what if you have the nuanced, emotional, regretful texture of a quiet midlife crisis immigrant family drama, and then you mix it up with Marvel-type time-hopping constructs, but instead of using gajillion-dollar VFX to make them happen so they all look kind of cloudy and gray and fake, you use good old-fashioned practical film effects and some martial arts stuff, <laughs> and um, and you get something that feels really new. But I I think that the strength of the central performances makes the emotional stuff really land. Like I wept at the end of this movie. I, all of the Rube Goldberg machines and the goofy raccoon subplots, we don't even need to get into. And the, and the (laughs) rocks, like, (laughs) I'm just going to keep saying things to entice her. The the rocks were beautiful. And the raccoons, Um, like, you know, getting to see Michelle Yeoh have this complicated, fascinating and wonderful a role and to just nail it in the way that she does is such a gift. It's so fun to see the, the many Michelle Yeohs. The other performers are revelations too. Like they, they are a hundred percent grounded, a real family tackling a real situation in the middle of all this mm-hmm. floppy fingered chaos. And I think it works. I mean, I, I, I don't quibble with your quibbles, but I absolutely think everyone among our listeners who's at all interested in movies should go see this. Yeah, to me, the things that would be my quibbles or my notes, you know, if I was seeing a press screening and I had some some control over what the next cut would be, I would say that it could be 10 minutes shorter. I think that it ends, I can see a better ending than the ending that's there, or I, or, or rather sort of I could graft <laughs> the ending that's there, which is really good and made me cry too, Julia, uh, a little bit earlier in the movie because I think... As often happens with actually with typical classic superhero movies, there's a little bit one action sequence too many, you know, and I think the turkey does get a little bit overstuffed there, Steve. But I wouldn't hold that against this movie because its entire ethos and reason for being is so antithetical to that kind of action movie. It's utterly original and um, and it's utterly committed to its weirdness. And everybody on screen gets that. You know, I mean, Michelle Yeoh, who doesn't often get to be funny, at least in the roles that make it to the West, to the U.S., I feel like she plays ice queens and she plays martial artists and she plays hyper-competent, cool spy women and stuff like that. And to get to see her just be this frazzled mess, you know, who really makes a lot of terrible mistakes. And, I mean, the person who she starts out being at the beginning of this movie is you know, sympathetic and likable, but she's not particularly good. (laughs) You know, she's not the great mom. She's not a great wife. She's certainly not running her business competently. She really is a a, a less with it heroine than you often get to see that particular actress play or, you know, most sort of actresses who who occupy that that space of movie star glamour and beauty. Um, So that's incredible. And also, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis, as funny as she has ever been, she's already become a meme in my family. We are now texting pictures of Jamie Lee Curtis in her costume from this movie back and forth because she's so hilarious. And also Kei Kwan, who plays her husband, Waymond, who plays uh, the Michelle Yeoh character's husband, who has to do such turn-on-a-dime character shifts as he changes among his different multiverse selves. And is just just brilliant at it. He's he's just wonderful. And the daughter Stephanie Shu is also, I think, great. Tremendous. Like the the, yeah. the the performances are really outstanding. Yeah, there's not one character that I would cast differently. I might give a little bit more time to the daughter's relationship with her girlfriend. I mean, this is a driving thing in the movie, right? That that, that Michelle Yeoh's character's daughter is gay. That she is somewhat uneasy with that, but it's her father, the girl's grandfather, who really doesn't know about it and sort of can't be told. And so there's this whole kind of coming out story that underlies the main plot of the movie. And yet I felt like the girlfriend was really just a stand in, you know, and it's essentially to symbolize like here is a person who is, you know, a girlfriend who represents being a gay girlfriend. And that didn't seem like a particularly queer friendly way to frame that story. There's also a moment and I won't spoil what it is, but there's kind of an anal penetration joke that I found kind of homophobic, especially in a movie that's supposed to be about recognizing a queer relationship. Yeah, it has to go. It's not funny anymore. It just was so out of place. And it suddenly made me think about what I was inclined to most dislike about the movie, which is that it's a couple of wise asses cracking each other up and throwing everything down on paper and then shaping it into a movie. And I don't think it's that. But that joke is just it's it's day has come and gone. Just move on. It's not funny. It is phobic, like in a movie that has this kind of serious nod towards LGBTQ alliance or allyship or whatever you want to call it it just was not it didn't it didn't belong there i wish if i could be 
glitched into another universe. It's um, a crowded Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever movie theater filled with other people. Uh, they have uh, a beer on tap, and I might have just laughed my way through this and loved it. As it was, it's pretty great. Uh, check it out. Everything, everywhere, all at once. Uh, it's in theaters now. It'll be streaming eventually. Shall we move on? Sure. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Before we go any further, uh, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, what do you have? Stephen, our only item of business is to tell our listeners about today's Slate Plus segment. This week, we are talking about an article that was published in Gawker, the new Gawker, which we'll also discuss. What is the website Gawker these days? This essay is called The Pity Me Personal Essay, and it's basically a takedown. It argues that a recent trend in personal writing has been delivering, quote, a whole lot of dramatics and zero perspective, unquote. So the three of us read that article. We're going to dig into its argument and decide if we agree that personal essays are getting too self-indulgent and less substantive. Slate Plus members can look forward to that conversation at the end of this show. And if you're not a Slate Plus member, of course, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. When you're a member, you get ad-free podcasts, you get bonus content like the segment I just described, and of course, you get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate. You will never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. Also, of course, you will be supporting us, our work, the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships matter a lot to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Once again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. Okay, Steve, onward. All right. Well, Slow Horses, it's on Apple TV+. Plus. It uh, features Gary Oldman. He plays Jackson Lamb. He's the head of something called Slough House, though it's not, it's not actually called Slough House. That's an insulting nickname. If you're there, it's only because you fucked up. You might as well be in Slough. And I just have to hear quickly say, this is the second major pop culture would-be icon with reference to an old John Betjeman poem. He's like the person you've only heard of if you love Philip Larkin. He's this very more English than the English English poet. Uh, and he wrote a poem about Slough, this made-up English town that was the most depressing uh, post-war community you could possibly imagine. Well, here it is again, Slough House. Oldman is a wizened old intelligence hand who's been put out to pasture. He knows that his job is to do nothing, but he doesn't really want to do nothing, and he sees everything or tries to. Um, his hands beneath him include River Cartwright, a young, dashing would-be super agent, uh, kind of in the uh, James Bond mold, hampered by a lifelong accusation of nepotism. His grandfather used to be an intelligence bigwig. Everyone thinks that's the only reason he's hanging on. We see him as, as cleverer than that. It's an interesting twist. He's been exiled from the real show, which, as we see, is a giant, sleek, open bullpen. It's a cross between Houston, we have a problem, and what I imagine like Google headquarters looks like. That's overseen by Kristen Scott Thomas, all right, in the clip we're about to hear, Lamb, who's played by Gary Oldman, assigns his new recruit, River Cartwright, uh, played by Jack Loudon, to dig through a bunch of trash. It's like classic do-nothing assignment, and uh, added to which River has no idea what he's supposed to be looking for. Okay, let's listen. Are we actually acting on any intel, or are we just fishing? Yeah, well, no, you don't get to ask questions. That's for spies who haven't shacked the bed. So what do you find? Any old notebooks? Uh, the cardboard backing of one, but no pages. Evidence of drug use? Empty box of paracetamol, yeah. Empty booth walls? In his recycling bin, I imagine. Oh, Christ. Is it me, or did all the fun go out of everything around 1979? Are we looking for something, or are we just wanting him to know that we're looking What's at him? It's we. It's no we. It's just me telling you what to do. Okay, do you want to tell me to put him under surveillance? Who? Hobden. What? What, you would be doing the surveillance? Yeah. You? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's an interesting proposition, considering the last time you were given any sort of responsibility. <laughs> A lot of innocent people got blown to bits. And there it is. Julia, my sense is this is not a runaway 
hit maybe some critics like it i i detect a lot of fence sitting in what i'm reading what did you make of it well i i'm dying to ask you guys this question because my interest in the show was driven by the fact that i've started reading the books that are the source material for it this is this uh series of um spies gone to seed books by mcherrin there's a number of them laura miller has written admiringly of them in slate and they scratch my um bedtime need a story with a plot and a brain uh, reading column, uh, which longtime listeners will know that I have need for. So um, it's an extremely faithful adaptation of the books, which I have just read some of. And as a result, I found myself uh, having trouble seeing it as a as an object separate from that. Um, I do think that you know, Gary Oldman's performance here is is charismatic and compelling. And in the early episodes, you begin to see um, the the kind of joke and conceit, which is that this slovenly, um, I think the first sound we hear him make is a gigantic fart, uh, seemingly gone to seed spy capo um, is in fact, has seen things and is hyper competent in his own way as the king of the duds uh and his magical grumbly grouchy efficacy is uh, an interesting thread in both the books and the show um i feel like his charges might come across a little underbaked our our would-be hero river cartwright seems like a bit of a tool and maybe that's the point is that instead of seeing his swashbuckling uh desire for rash action as um heroic we get the sense that it's a little bit boneheaded but i'm very curious what you guys think because i found myself having trouble seeing the show through the scrim of the books i've just been reading julia would you say that you prefer the books to the show at the moment yeah i mean it's one of those worlds that once you get lost in it you're like sure i'll take more in whatever format so it it seems like a fine compliment and i'll probably keep watching but the books there's a very very british dry deadpan humor underlying the books um, that comes over to some degree in the show, but the show feels a little straighter than the books to me. Yeah, the show is is somewhere balanced in between an actual spy drama with real suspense and a real crime, a kidnapping that they're trying to solve, and what I would consider sort of British insult comedy. And that's my favorite part of the show, I think. It's not just Gary Oldman who's really skilled at it. I mean, every character who is stuck in this place, the so-called slough house, is there because of something they did that, that they screwed up about, right? It might be something embarrassing, like one of them left a classified document on a train, and that's why he got banished from, you know, the good spy house to, to the bad one. Um, and some some others haven't yet said what their secrets are, so they're presumably something worse than that, more nefarious. But they're all really funny and constantly putting each other down, and there's just kind of an atmosphere of, of self-deprecation and depression throughout the whole workplace that makes the workplace comedy of it, I think, more successful for me so far than than the spy content of it. But that said, the show is really growing on me. You know, it, it opens with what feels like a very familiar chase scene um, in an airport. And you feel like, oh, this is a born type scene. And I've seen these things a million times. And then you realize that that's just a training exercise. And that's sort of this great rug pull. And in fact, you never really, at least so far, I'm now four episodes in, um, you never really get back to that, you know, that born identity kind of moment. You spend most of your time in these slovenly back rooms hearing people bitch at each other and ineffectively try to solve crimes that they don't understand. And uh, as somebody who likes a procedural that goes nowhere, like the movie Zodiac, the David Fincher movie, I'm, I'm intrigued by that and, and we'll keep watching it. I got to say, I, I I love it. I really do love it. Um, I, due to a power outage, was only able to watch two. I would have binged as many as I could have. Um, I'm all in like Tinker Taylor, Gary Oldman, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas as a, as mum for ma'am. Uh, you've got a workplace dramedy that I actually think works. It's funny. I think these, I perceive these people as, as real and stuck together for real reasons. It's a bureaucratic procedural, which has at least a little bit of that, you know, uh, great plausibility of something like the Bureau. I mean, it's a very different show. It's not, it's not based on anything so intricately researched, but it, it plays with our expectations about the genre, I think quite, quite knowingly, but not archly. Um, 
I love the major setup of Slough House. Uh, I, I buy it. It just kind of, it has this horrible rundown Soviet. You can kind of smell it through your TV screen. It's kind of really depressing. Um, and I like the mini major one. I mean, I, 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 I like this twist that someone who's, he's too, who's like Jared Kushner. So he's been dismissed his whole life. He's too attractive. He's too slim. Uh, he's he's too well connected, central. right? His grandfather, who's played wonderfully by Jonathan Price, is an important spy. I'm getting, I'm getting there. Yeah, no, no, not central to, not casting. Not to step on you, sorry. No, and he's and he's a Fauntleroy, and such a person is is going to always be told anything you have is not uh, yours to deserve. Plus, Jonathan Price, just a wonderful British actor. It's always wonderful to see him uh, anywhere. He's really good in this. I kind of believed these people were real. It's the big genre hurdle. Um, as one example of the backstories that get you into Slough being thought out, they're not lazy. His, the Fauntleroy's, is actually quite good. It's it's yet another. It's like they're little Etonian asshole hatchlings working their way up through the intelligence services, him and a rival, the Fauntleroy and his rival, who's better looking and more deeply Machiavellian and, and nasty, and they're mutually undermining one another, and they've got like an old married couple banter to them. It's terrifically well-drawn, and it's that guy pulling a fast one that gets him there. Um, and, and so that relationship is set up for the entirety of the series arc uh as far as i can see that's that's terrifically good job of placing him in his circumstances and us you know now in a position to root for him to get out of them um i and julia most of all this morning you've relieved me of that mournful feeling of falling in love for a doomed show i have a funny feeling this may not find its audience somehow and i didn't know that there were books i mean i get to enter this universe i i don't have to I don't have to get invested and then watch them all disappear like they were phantoms all along. I'm so psyched that these books are good. There's like seven books already and an eighth one coming out in May. So welcome. <laughs> oh, welcome, friend. Um, I'm so I will in. say, I want to steal a note from, from Laura Miller, whose piece you should read about these books. But her read on it was that it was um, a spy thriller for the Gen X age in that all of these people are have the Cold War hanging over them. Oh. And Jackson Lamb, the the Gary Oldman character, is a Cold War vet. And there's sort of a sense of like, back in the day, everything was clear and and we knew what mattered. And um, now we're just like stuck in an office and it's very hard to tell what's important and everything's a mess. And half the time it's because we fucked it up. Um, anyway, it was an interesting generational read. So it's a, it's a useful lens to watch the show through, I think. There's one more thing I want to shout out before we leave the show behind, which is the incredible theme song. It's it's written and co-written, I think, and sung by Mick Jagger, specifically about these characters. It reminds me of an old school sitcom theme that would sort of be about the, the, the actual subject matter of the show. Yes. And he apparently yes. wrote it and agreed to sing the song because he loves the Mick Heron books. So that just, that made me very happy. It's so funny. I had not yet read anything about the show when I was watching it. And I said to my husband, I was like, what is with this theme song? It's like family ties or something. Like the theme song is literally like, it's a bunch of spies and they used to be good. And then they all went bad. Gilligan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Three hour tour. And yet, and you're like, is that Mick Jagger? And is that 2022 Mick Jagger? I mean, talk about like the boomer hangover hanging over all of us. Like what? It's so, so bizarre. It's yeah. a killer so theme. I have never once fast-forwarded through it. I want to hear Mick sing about Mick forever. I, like, hate it and think it's terrible <laughs> and also hilarious. Oh, I love it. I love it. It's the hair of the fucking dog. It's so... It's like I'm well, like kind of cured of the boomer hangover. Uh, okay, I think we like the show, right? I'm going to watch it through to the end. Everyone with me on this? Yes. Yes, I will continue with Slow Horses, especially because it's only six episodes. In fact, I've read some reviews of it that said it was almost too short of a season to explore all of the, the threads that get thrown out. So I would rather too short than too long. I've already watched four. I'm certainly going to watch through to the end. Okay. Uh, Julia, one more thing very quickly. The title of the first of the books? Is Slow Horses. 
that's easy. Okay, good. Uh, I will definitely check it out. All right, uh, Slow Horse is the TV show. It's on Apple TV Plus. We're I'm I'm a table pounder on it. I love it. I think you know you guys are more or less with me. So check it out. And, uh, Gently email tapping us. the table to get your attention. No, no, no. Mine's a a pound. It's a British pound. All right, moving on. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Okay, well, the post-punk outfit, Wet Leg, they're from the Isle of Wight. They broke pretty big, indie big, I'd argue, during COVID with the song Chaise Long, a fun bit of post-punk nihilism. Now they have an album, and uh, I think it's got a little bit of, it's got play and controversy to it. It makes it a, a catnipy subject for us. Uh, Paige and Carl Wilson. Carl is the music critic for Slate. He's the author of the classic 33 and a Third uh, essay. It's since been published in full book form with a bunch of replies. Uh, let's talk about love, uh, exploration of taste. Carl, it's always really cool to have you on the show. Welcome. It's so good to be here. And I'm here in person today, which is an unusual thing. So that's fantastic. Marvelous. Um, we're going to get to a lot of things, but why don't we start a kind of obvious place and just listen to a little bit of the hit. I'm tempted just to hand you the ball and, and watch you uh, run with it, but I guess the place to start is that you know it's it has a kind of uh, we're only in it for the money nihilism, you know, a sort of studied soullessness to it um, that's nonetheless incredibly fun, and so it needs to feel like a roost to work. And some people maybe either don't like that joke or aren't in on it, and so there's this hovering question of are these industry, you know, is this an AstroTurf band? Is is this, you know, is, is this a cynical ploy or whatever? And the answer is kind of like, yeah, but that's the point, right? Anyway, what am I missing? <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure I would say it's a cynical ploy. I mean, one of the things that's interesting about this story is that they just haven't happened to follow the kind of tried and true indie path, and especially for um, this point in the 21st century. Um so the, the band is centered around two women, um, Rianne Teasdale and Hester Chambers, who are um, both in their late 20s, I think 28 and 29 at this point. Um, and they started the band a couple of years ago after having been musicians each on their own since their mid-teens. And so they, they've sort of been around the block in uh, making attempts to shoot into the music industry for a long time, um, doing sort of folkier material. Rianne Teasdale actually... Uh, was kind of an unbelievably accurate Joanne Newsom uh, carbon copy in her teenage bands. Um, and none of that went anywhere. And then 
they kind of plugged into this post-punk revival that's been going on in the UK for many years now. And the story goes that they went to a festival and saw the band Idols and uh, rode a Ferris wheel and and decided then and there that they wanted to sort of shrug off their uh, earnest folkiness and do something more fun and loud and and show that they could get down with the boys on at slamming on their electric guitars and all of that. And that very quickly developed in the early pandemic, really, into a project where apparently they recorded something like 30 songs, but put together a four-song demo tape. And their connections that they developed over the time um, paid off because a couple of the musicians they brought in had connections to managers in London. And, um, and that ended up getting them a record deal in the very old-fashioned way that, you know, you just get your tape to somebody rather than the sort of modern way that we think of as like gigging and gigging and building up an online fan base and attracting the attention of a label that way. And so that's produced this kind of idea of them as an industry plant. But industry plant really is usually more of a term for like a producer-created band. And that's not what they are. They're just people who are savvy enough and hit the right moment and attracted the attention of producers. But yeah, they sort of came out of nowhere as a result because nobody had really heard anything outside of a few shows around the Isle of Wight and Bristol and a couple of other places. Um, so this video emerged of them uh, lounging around at a country house wearing kind of uh, throwback gingham and, and <laughs> muslin costumes and shrugging and uh, and playing chaise long. And um, it really took off in a viral way. And then those two kind of narratives kind of came together and you got sort of the, both the modern viral band effect and this kind of old-fashioned way of going about it. And so a lot of people felt like they'd, they'd come out of nowhere a lot more than they really have, I think. Do you guys know where I heard about this band? <laughs> no. No. From last year's Summer Strut Megalist. I don't know if you guys ended up picking this as one of your picks, but I did listen to the Megalist and I did start to whittle it before I realized that uh, the the constraints of maternity leave were going to leave me unable to join you guys. But I've been listening to Sheslong for months uh, <laughs> because one of our dear listeners recommended it to us and uh, was very delighted in preparing for this topic to discover the rest of the album, which... Um, really tickles me the the particular uh, kind of fuck you and Susie's of the lyrics and the <laughs> poppiness of the tunes. Uh, I, I love, and there are places where you feel like they're just really biting Courtney Barnett's style and they should step off. But I don't know, it works. I'm I'm into it. I even like the song about how much it stinks to look at your phone, and I feel like between this and the. Um, Muna song we talked about on a on a recent uh, the previous strut. There's like a subgenre of like I hate how I feel when I look into my phone songs, which I think is its own playlist that we probably need to make. <laughs> You know, the thing that really struck me about this album, this, this eponymous album, Wet Leg, listening through, is the songs are really short, which I love, which is, I guess, a punk thing, right? A post-punk kind of thing. Really short, like about two minutes and 20 seconds, some of the songs. And to the extent that when I first heard it, I thought, am I listening to one of those samples where I didn't really download the album and I'm just hearing some <laughs> some little piece of each song? But they seem to have endings. And anyway, I, I, I really respect that, that these songs, are, they remind me of little, they're like little pellets, you know, being shot out of a gun or something, or gumballs, you know, they have this uh, discrete quality as little units of sound and of meaning as well. And the lyrics are pretty, as so far as I can understand them, because I've only heard the album through a couple times now, the lyrics are, are pretty great too. Um, this might be from the Looking at Your Phone song. I'm not sure, Julia, but I had this rhyme in my head on the way into the studio that was something like, I don't need a dating app to tell me that I look like crap. I don't need a dating app to tell me if I look like crap, to tell me if I'm thin or fat, to tell me should I shake my rat. Right, they're wise asses. Uh, but there's also something kind of feminist about that lyric. I think one thing is that Rianne Teasdale is both um, an incredibly witty and facile lyricist and a 
I think there's something that gets underrated by people who heard Chase Long too much and not by not heard the rest of the album. She also has an amazing voice and she <laughs> yeah, she uses it sparingly as opposed to the sort of Kate Bush, Joanna Newsom flights that she went on in her early career. But melodically, you know, it's not all just just chatter singing. And um, and even when it is her sense of timing and intonation are so precise mm. to carry off the effects. And then there's the back and forth between the two of them, which is easy to see if you watch any videos of them playing live. Like, they often crack each other up, and and um, Hester often just has little background vocal interjections. Like, the the familiar one on Chaise Long is, is when Rihanna's going, excuse me, and Hester goes, what? Mm-hmm. And then they go back and forth <laughs> that way. And, it's, and it really... You know, as you listen to the music more, this sense of uh, a really powerful and inside jokey and mutually comforting female friendship is a big part of this band in a way that that it, we don't see enough of, you know, and mm-hmm. and I, it's something I find extremely endearing about what they do. And their subject matter is, you know, not particularly novel there's been lots of sort of female-led rock bands that have gone down this road but this sort of quarter-life crisis theme and you know shitty boys theme none of it is heavy-handed and it's not and it's very different than the you know wave of what gets called sad girl indie over the past several years you know people like Mitski and people like our beloved phoebe bridgers and other people who like probe at these things with this deep, deep sort of melancholy that, and that's kind of created its own constituency. And there's something I think very apropos to the moment of young women dealing with that same subject matter with this kind of carefree silliness. And it really yeah, shrugs off I that really significance of burden, <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that I, I think has become a bit of an affectation in indie music yes. In recent years, and this is that's part of I think what makes people respond so powerfully to them. Yes, I, I totally agree with that, and also I just love the idea of of anybody belatedly taking on an affectation in order to find their and through it find their authentic self, authentic sound. In the case of a band, it's just it's just great, and um, it's it's the Strokes are a comp. I think Carl, you and I threw around maybe on email it seems apropos it's like god it's just so beyond the existing categories at the same time you know contemporary existing categories it's kind of an homage but it's it's kind of new and it's just great rock and roll um it it what's weird is how fun it is and how reluctant it is to please at least in a predictable way especially melodically they have a great melodic sense when they want to use it they often withhold it in a little a little bit in in a way that i think really works um there's a curious exception uh i don't want to go out which is just very melodic it's playful it's fetching it's like a little pop gem maybe we could listen to a second of that and then carl will go out on 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 a cut you pick i don't want to go of Courtney Barnett doesn't she have a song that with the exact same theme even maybe the same yeah, title that's, not wanting to go that's out like my that's my least favorite song because it's the one that's so Courtney Barnetty the the um I don't want to go to the party yeah I mean that's that there's definitely touchstones I mean part of the thing about this band is that on every song there's sort of five or six reference points that one might think of um which you can look at as a sign of derivativeness or just of a great kind of synthesizing imagination musically. Like one of the things about that song that um, sneaks up on you a little bit, maybe takes a couple of listens to realize is that the guitar riff in it is from David Bowie's The Man Who Sold the World. Oh, wow. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure through through Nirvana's cover, I imagine, is where they're deriving it from. 
so yeah, there's lots and lots. You know, I w- I started making lists last night, and I had would end up with like fifteen, twenty bands. You know, things like from La Tigra and Pavement and the Breeders and Elastica and Blondie and you know the different songs. Like all of these things sort of pop into your head, which I find delightful. Although it does make me wonder, you know, it's definitely among the sort of uh, middle-aged music critic crowd that I run with. Uh, their refreshingness is is extremely popular. I'm not sure how much of their audience is people their own age. You know, like whether this is kind of a great burst of life in the in the rock world, um, a rock world that nobody of their generation or a very small pocket of people of their generation care for. You know, I think they do have hip hop influences and that kind of thing. They they talked about WAP, the Cardi B, Megan the Stallion single as as like one of the most inspiring things to them to to sort of liberate them and to go in this direction. But yeah, it's a, I think that's a question that that stands out about them is is that they're just like a little bit out of phase with time is appealing across generations, but also maybe limits their potential mm. scope. It's hard to say. Yeah, uh, Carl, we're running out of time. Can you pick uh, one uh, one for us to go out on? Yeah, I mean, I think my favorite song, or at least at this point in my relationship with the album, is Wet Dream, which combines sort of a lot of the themes and a lot of the very witty and cultural reference moves um, that that Rand Teasdale shows off all the time with this just incredible, like, this is true of a lot of the songs, but it's like hooks within hooks within hooks and like shout along portions and shout along with things that are like obviously ironic gestures. And so it's like <laughs> it pushes so many pleasure centers that way. Yeah. And plus, who knew Buffalo 66 was a touchdown for Gen whatever they are nihilists? It's great. <laughs> yeah, let's, yeah. let's check it out. Okay, an incredibly fun record made only funner by uh, talking about it with Carl. Wilson Slate's music critic, Carl, please, please come back soon. Um, Let's find music on a more regular basis and talk about it with you. Anytime, absolutely. tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen. Ah, right. Now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse Dana. Well, what do you have? Stephen, you're going to like my endorsement today because I'm reading a poem. And I know you like when one of us brings in a whole short poem and reads it. So I'm reading a poem by Herman Melville, whose poetry I did not know at all. I have a friend who's a Melville nut, just a complete Melville head, you know, has read every biography, everything he's written, and always told me, read his poetry. His poetry is bonkers, but it's great. And Melville's poetry, if you don't know much about it, was mainly written, I think almost exclusively written, in the part of his life when he was no longer publishing, no longer writing novels, when he was, you know, a a functionary, essentially, at the customs office in New York, and just sort of toiling away as a writer privately in his garret, having given up on being a literary success. Uh, And this is a poem about that. It's a poem about art and about making art, and the title is Art. And as you will see, it took me a few times reading it to discover this, but it's actually a sonnet. Art. In placid hours, well-pleased we dream of many a brave, unbodied scheme. But form to lend, pulsed life create, what unlike things must meet and mate. 
A flame to melt, a wind to freeze, sad patience, joyous energies, humility, yet pride and scorn, instinct and study, love and hate, audacity, reverence, these must mate, and fuse with Jacob's mystic heart to wrestle with the angel art. Whoa. Kablamo. That's that's <laughs> real good. Kablamo is right. Right? Oh, I mean, that poem mind. gets it done in 14 lines. It's amazing. It's an amazing, amazing poem about creation. And the fact that it was written by, you know, this guy who has been just a fount of creation his whole life and essentially never really appreciated or seen in the process of doing it is just mm. is so moving. It's extraordinary. That is such a home run, Dana. Oh, that was that was that was marvelous. I can't wait to like just see it on the page. Thank you, uh, Julia. What do you have? All right, multi-part endorsement, but I will keep it brief. So, as noted at the top of the show, this weekend, uh, April twenty second, twenty third, twenty fourth, in Los Angeles at the campus of USC is the LA Times Festival of Books which is such an amazing event. It has hundreds of thousands of visitors. It has 500 authors. Most of the events are free. There are all kinds of interesting conversations. And if you are in LA and you have not checked it out, which you may not have if you're new to LA because it has been virtual the last couple of years, um, it's really, really worth going. Uh, as noted, Dana and I are both uh, doing panels on Saturday afternoon, so that would be an opportune time to come. I'm interviewing Mike Schur of The Good Place and a new book, How to Be Perfect. Dana's speaking about her book with others, um, so you should come. But in advance of that, uh, our books team at the LA Times put together a really, really great package called Lit City, which is all about the history and present of Los Angeles as a literary capital of the world, which it truly is contrary to uh, what people who don't live here and the ignorant might think or say. Um, and within that, there is a really great list of the 65 best bookstores in LA County. And one of those write-ups was contributed by me, hot off of a tip from a Culture Gab Fest listener who told me that I had to check out a great bookstore on Pico called Children's Book World. Um, so when the opportunity came to contribute to our bookstore list, I was like, oh, let me go check out Children's Book World. I'll write up that one. Um, and it is, in fact, great. So thank you to Claire Joyce, our listener, who pointed me to Children's Book World. If you would like to hear more about what I and she said about Children's Book World, check out the 65 best bookstores in Los Angeles at the LA Times website and the rest of the Great Lit City package and attend the Festival of Books. Just a few to-dos for you all. Uh, for my endorsement today. Oh, Julia, that sounds amazing. Um, all right, I'm going to endorse with just full-throated enthusiasm an essay in the New York Review of Books that's now at least a couple, three weeks old. I, I wanted to get to it, and, and now I'm going to, but it's in its way timeless because it's it, it, it takes directly on this incredibly sad, unkillable uh, trend in pseudo-social scientific thought, which equates some feature of human biology with some highly social, highly historically determined outcome. I mean, the most famous of which being, you know, the attempt to biologize human intelligence and then claim that occupational outcomes in a modern economy are somehow, you know, uh, inexorably correlated with it, i.e. the bell curve. Of course, it always, it probably begins in racism. It never admits that it does, but it always ends in racism. It needs to be killed. And it needs to be killed not just because we have hothouse flower liberal sensibilities and we don't want to talk about like we're a too you know uh frightened of subjects that make us uncomfortable or we're too politically correct or we're too science illiterate all of that is bullshit and the scientists who take the time and patience to talk about these things as sadly they're forced to do every few years and certainly multiple times a generation always obliterate it right it never is left standing and it's happening once again so let me say the name of it is called why biology is not Destiny. It's by M.W. Feldman and Jessica Riskin. And let me just give you a quick flavor of it. If you, they say, the authors say, if you find a magical hammer that whenever you swing it rewards you with funding and professional advancement, you look at your research area and see nothing but nails. Genome-wide association studies are the social sciences' new magical hammer. What I love about it is it has rhetorical verve, uh, a, a kind of calm and steady 
um, sobriety to it and complete and utter control of the science, unlike the people that they are obliterating. Feldman is a professor of biology at Stanford, uh, the founder and co-director of uh, Stanford's Center for Computational Evolutionary and Human Genomics. I do not suspect that this person takes a backseat to anybody on the science involving this subject. His co-author is Jessica Riskin. Uh, She's the Francis and Charles uh, Field Professor of History at Stanford. I strongly suspect she takes a backseat to nobody on the subject of the history of the abuse, uses and abuses of social science. Together, they have something that is ironclad, and it is basically a very precise historically and scientifically scrupulous STFU at this particular brand of racism. It's terrific. I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a, it's just a, it's an incredible performance and it allows you to know that what your instinct tells you as a non-scientist and a person with eyes living in contemporary America is true. Julia, thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, And Dana, thank you so much. It was a joy. Yeah, it was a really fun one. Great to have Julia back. Uh, You will find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Our intro music is by the uh, composer Nicholas Patel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. For Dana Stevens, Julia Turner, and Carl Wilson, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Really fun. We will see you soon.